Good evening, folks. On this Saturday, the 8th day of July, 2023, the end of a long holiday week. And in your host's opinion, probably the singular holiday unique to these United States, truly worthy of celebration for reasons that we'll talk about. So here are some excerpts next of a show that I did with the common lawyer, Brent Allen Winters, concerning the document that lays out the very basis for government itself and the reason for this nation's existence. As you'll see, he prefers to call it the Declaration of 76. I think of it as perhaps the most important document ever written originally in the English language. And certainly, in such a time as this, it's never been more important to make sure we understand it and teach it. So here we go. Hey, good afternoon, Brent. It's great to talk with you. How are you doing? All right, Mark. Thanks for asking me to come on. I look forward to whatever it is you've got in store here. <laughs> okay. Of course, uh, you can talk about it or you can ask me questions, but in either case, um, I'll let you guide the discussion. Well, let me do this. I, there are some things that I like to talk about every year. I know that they're in your book. And um, I'm looking, by the way, uh, Brent has written a number of things, but uh, one of them is the Declaration of 76, United States Constitution, uh, a common lawyer comments. And this is a clause-by-clause -clause analysis that he put together, it looks like about a dozen years ago, on the Constitution and the Declaration. A lot of really valuable insights in here. Certainly a lot of overlap in things that we talk about every year. But I guess I'll start with these two, Brent, and then turn it over to you. One, and it is so fundamental, is the second paragraph, where he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And that, I think, is probably one of the most powerful assessments and statements uh, ever penned originally in the English language about the basis for government. And it's vitally important but actually, I know in your book and in your understanding, you start off a bit earlier, and uh, there are several really important things we're going to see as we go through here that begin in the first paragraph. So um, if you will, let me just turn it over to you and say, hey, in that first paragraph, anywhere you'd like to go, let's start off and talk about why that first paragraph is important to lay out what we're going to continue to talk about today. Oh, well, thank you. I'll, I've got something to say about most all of it, I suppose. And there's a lot more that could be said than I'm saying, but I'll say something. First of all, the words, the words Declaration of Independence don't appear anywhere in this document. And the reason they don't appear anywhere in the document is because that's not what it is. It is not a Declaration of Independence. <laughs> it is officially the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. Again, no Declaration of Independence. Well, what is it if it's not a declaration of independence if those words don't occur? Well, what it is is a declaration of shifting dependence, although it's popularly called in a declaration of independence. It's shifting dependence. We shifted our dependence, our association from Britain, to associating as the United States and shifting our dependence to the supreme uh, judge of all the world, which uh, is mentioned in the last part of the document, but is not, uh, our, well, let's put it this way. It says, appealing to the supreme judge of the world, the rectitude of our intentions, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, not on the protection of morality, but the protection of providence, 
You know, people think, and these are Christian men, don't tell me they weren't. How Christian were they? Well, they were, Christ, they were Christian in this sense, I know for sure. They were awash and a swim, and they were inundated with a puritanical view of the world, regardless of what they believed. Now, I know that they didn't view Christianity, many of them. Some did, some didn't, as an evangelical would view, view Christianity today. But as political animals, and that's what they were, they knew that they couldn't do anything but what the people of the United States didn't agree to it. And all they're doing here is trying to find, as all people in political power try to do, try to find the words that would tell people, put to words, what people are already thinking. That's the way you become successful in politics. Uh, General MacArthur, one, he was, uh, by the way, a personal assistant when he got out of West Point. He was a personal assistant to Teddy Roosevelt, President of the United States, for those of you that went to the public school system. But he was assistant to him, and he noticed his popularity. And one time, this is according to MacArthur's own testimony, he asked Roosevelt, he said, why is it that you're so popular? And he says, for one reason, because I try to discern what it is that most of the people are thinking, and I put it in words for them. And that's what the Declaration of 76 is. Put aside any negative thoughts you have about the folks that we call the founders. They're not the ones that ratified this. They're not the ones that made this happen. They're the ones that put it into words. But the people of the United States, which is the militia, militia, militia is the people. The men of the United States are the ones that ratified these documents, ultimately. If they didn't have their, their approval for it, it would never have happened. So what this is, of course, then, is a is a shifting of dependence to the supreme judge of the, world, of the world. And when I say that it's not a shifting of dependence to depending upon our morality, oh, I know, I know that uh, John Adams said the Constitution it was written, and this isn't the Constitution, but it leads up to it, it was written for a moral people. Well, that's not the Bible, friends. That's John Adams, and I don't think that it really has much much power to it, and it really doesn't matter at all, because Christianity is not a moral order. It's not a matter of morality. Morality is nothing more than a word in Latin that means customs or habits of a people, and the customs and habits of most all people are horrendously rotten. <laughs> yeah. I don't like it when people talk about Well, they are, and you, Mark, you and I have briefly discussed this at other times in our encounters. I don't remember when and where, but uh, the law of God is what God is after. He's not after somebody's idea of morality. Exactly. And ultimately, yeah, ultimately it is the providence of God that sustains us. It is the providence of God that provides us with his will, which is the will of the sovereign, his law. It is the providence of God that provides us with food, with clothing, with shelter, with families, with a land he has given us. That is providential. And the Puritans and the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians and the Dutch Reformed people in America that founded the country, they were the people of the United States, about 98.5%. And that's the way they understood the world, that Christianity is not about morality. It's about providence. Providence. He is provender. He is provider. And when you read the, his names, his descriptive names in the Old Testament, of course, we see that that's what he is in all cases. And without him, we would all be out of existence. 
All right. So that's the foundation. If we don't recognize that first, then everything else that comes out of our Christian ideas of reality and life uh, fall flatter than a flitter. Mark, uh, very good. I'll take a breather. You want? Yeah, let's let's do this. Let's let's make a couple of points, and I want to begin in that first paragraph, and um, I'll uh, I'll cut to the chase. One of the things that I always like to point out, and as we go through this, we'll see this. But in the Declaration of um, the Thirteen United and with a small U, capital S States of America, that was in fact unanimous. Uh, we're going to see four references to uh, the uh, the Creator by various uh, references, anyway, and um, one of them is uh, is the Creator itself or himself and that paragraph i already read we hold these truths to be self-evident all men are created equal endowed by their creator but there are three others and those three others are kind of fascinating i know you've talked about this i i mention it every year they come from isaiah chapter 33 and verse 22 where um essentially we're going to see that he is referenced three times i am your king i am your judge i am your lawgiver and from that, of course, we get this idea of the separation of powers, because in his hands only should those things be combined. And as we go through this again, we're going to see uh, all of those three references in here, plus the creator. And I know that the other one, and this is the one that I think we, we probably want to start with, uh, you and I talked about this before on an earlier show that you did with me, where we, um, well, I'll just read it. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station so this is a uh, this is something they're going to do because it's right and proper that they do but here we go to which the laws of nature and of nature's god entitles them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So they're going to do this, but specifically this reference to the laws of nature and of nature's God. And, and uh, just briefly, because I know we've talked about it before, but you might outline uh, those two different things that we're talking about here and how that is literally the basis for uh, uh, at least a large part of what follows. No question. And, when he says the laws of nature and the second volume called the laws of nature's God, he's signifying, denoting the, our common law, unwritten, lex non scripta, says William Blackstone, and our law written, revealed religion, says William Blackstone, which is what? The Bible. These two volumes, these and no others, these and no more form all of the all of the foundation of our legal tradition. If you don't give attention to those two volumes as a lawyer, you're uh, you're you're thwarting your duty. If you don't give attention to those two volumes as a preacher of the gospel, you're thwarting your duty. If you don't give attention to those two volumes and those and to the exclusion of all others as an American, you're thwarting. Your duty. Is there something else? Maybe a football game. Maybe watching Fox News. <laughs> Maybe a thousand other things that you don't have time to do, according to God, except give attention to these two volumes. And I can tell you, Mark, for sure, that I, having done it now for a number of years and immersed myself and spent my time teaching it and talking about it, it's brought more more joy to my life than anything I've ever done, and it's also brought more trouble. 
No question about it. I think we were joking last time you and I met uh, when I happened to be in your neck of the woods, and you guys were comparing notes about who'd been thrown in jail the longest and for, <laughs> for how many times. And uh, I said, well, I got you all beat. There were two or three of us there. I said, I've been thrown in jail twice. For doing what? Well, for doing what lawyers are supposed to do, uh, defending their clients. That's what goes on. It goes on a lot. There's nothing wrong with it, but I know this. I know that I'm devoted to true law, and I know what my duty is, and my oath or no oath, you still have a duty, my friend. The oath doesn't give you a duty. The oath that people take as lawyers or as military men or as office holders of deport, support and defend the Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic, that's a common law oath. It's ancient. It's ancient, an ancient oath of 1,500 years old at least. That, but that doesn't give you any duty. And it doesn't make you more guilty. It just it reinforces the duty you already have. And if you don't do it, you're guilty whether you took the oath or not. If God has given you a land to live on, and the land of the, we call America is our land, he gave it to us, then you have a duty not to pollute that land. That means that you have a duty to not violate God's law knowingly and to speak out when others are committing those kinds of crimes. And if you don't do your duty, your life will be miserable and unfulfilling to that degree. It's that simple. It's okay. just a matter of doing right, friends. No man has a right to do wrong. But getting back to this, and you do a good job of trying to stick to the text, the laws of nature and the laws of nature is God. That phrase came from the Scottish Enlightenment. The Scottish Enlightenment. It's another way to express the truth. Through history, men have expressed the same first principles that never change using different tongues and different words. The Reformation in Scotland and the Reformation in Britain and England established the, the authority of the Bible. The Reformation in Scotland conclusively and terminally ended idolatry. The Reformation in England, the Puritan Reformation as we call it, established the idea of God's commitment, his undertaking, his promise to man as being central, his trust settlement, I like to say, as being central to the relationship he has with his people. We call it religion. Don't let people tell you that, you that they have a relationship with Jesus Christ and don't have religion. No, the Bible says religion is your relationship with Jesus Christ, and if you've got him, you've got the right religion. But it is a trust settlement. And God established that in Britain, in Scotland, in England, those two things, the ending of idolatry terminally, that culture has been strong ever since it's come to America. And the ending of the idea that my relationship with God has to be through some powerful institution like the Roman church. No, it's a trust settlement that God made with his people individually. Now, we got that. So the Scottish and the English and the British Reformation established those truths. And then arising out of Scotland, that was established the Bible as the definitive documents and the final rule for all life. But then out of that, people begin to ask. Men, in, in um, inquiring minds, the Christian men begin to ask, but what about the revelation of nature? Doesn't the Bible talk about that? Doesn't Romans chapter 1 start out talking about nation, uh, nature? Doesn't Psalm 19 extol 
the revelation, God revealing himself, himself and the laws that he, is, that he shows us in the natural world? And the answer was yes. And they begin to put these two together and say, you know, the Bible talks about the laws of nature. In fact, the Bible says that's what leads men, if they accept the laws of nature, that's what leads them to the scriptures and they can learn of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, the Savior of his people. That's God's M.O., from the laws of nature to the laws of nature's God. You can read it in our hymnology, not only in the Bible. O oh Lord, my God, how I in awesome wonder, and consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. That is a reference, of course, to a man seeing the natural revelation of God in nature and the laws that he has put there and observing them. Brent. Lightning can kill you. That's, that's why we put lightning rods on our barns. Go ahead, Mark. Well, let me, let me see if I can't put it this way, because, uh, you know, I have a, a different background. You, you obviously come from a legal background, have a really great understanding of history, and especially uh, English and Scottish and American history that dates back that way, and a lot of elements to that. Uh, but, but my own perspective, I came at it from a bit more of a nerdy standpoint, if you will, more of an engineering and physics background. And uh, I tend to think, okay, when I hear the word law, um, I think about uh, as, as a scientist or a, an engineer rather than a lawyer, and when I think about natural law in particular, well, I think about things that uh, physicists say are laws. In other words, uh, the law of gravity. How do I know it's a law of gravity? Because every time I test it, every single time it always works. You know, Newton formulated GM1, M2 over R squared, and lots of things we can say about it. But there are certain laws that are written in the very fabric of the way the universe is designed. This is, this is how I came to faith, by, by seeing those things and recognizing you know, the nature of certain kinds of differential equations. They always yield uh, underdamped exponential cycles. And uh, so basically there are, there are laws. Newton's second law of thermodynamics that was discovered, but they're really his law. And of course they're not repealed, and you don't obey the law of gravity. It just is. And if you, uh, if you try to flaunt the law of gravity, especially as a pilot, I know this, that may end up costing you your life. It's not repealed because you get a pilot's license and learn how to fly an airplane. It's just that the laws are things that we, the more we understand, the more we can do with. So I like this formulation of the laws of nature, these things that we see in his revealed universe, the things that um, physicists and scientists and electronics folks can say, okay, we, we learn about Maxwell's equations, we can see elements of them. But um, then the other part, the, the written scripture part, you know, the thing that I refer to as Torah, his instruction, the, uh, all the things that he wrote for us. Uh, as you know, uh, Yeshua taught in parables, and uh, those are a form of instruction. They're not so much law as just telling us about his law, telling us about the things that he put in, in print or in, um, in revealed word for our benefit. So um, anyway, that's, that's kind of my take. I don't know if you've got any comment on that. Then we'll go back and, and look at uh, where that leads in the document itself. We're almost at the bottom the hour break here but but go ahead okay yeah real quick that's following up with what you said of course your experience is the method of operation that god shows us in the bible that's the way he leads men to the savior and the reformers talking about back in britain they made an observation i'm talking about the scotch irish presbyterian the english puritans of which John Locke, by the way, was an English Puritan, 
and a biblicist to the nth degree, and his phrases are in this document. Tom Jefferson said that he was one of the three greatest mortals that ever lived, was John Locke. He was the greatest fan of the Scottish Enlightenment. The Scottish Enlightenment overtook the whole English-speaking world. But back to this point about the laws of nature, of course, uh, we recognize that the laws of nature show us and reveal that there is a creator. There's a design in nature, so we say there's a designer. There are laws that are unchangeable. You referenced them with these equations. They're immutable. They never change. And the reformers said, you know, the natural revelation of God, the laws of nature, that first unwritten volume, is a revelation from God to man, but it is a revelation of condemnation. Because all it does is make you more responsible, but it doesn't give you the remedy for your sin. Because it teaches you that God is sovereign, God is awesome, God is terrible in the sense that he is dreadful. He's judge, as it says in our Declaration of 76, he is supreme judge of all the world. And, and you know that, then what do you do? Well, there's nothing to do unless... God then leads you to his written revelation. Somehow somebody reads it to you. You hear it explained. You read it yourself. And then he can lead you to the Savior. I can't tell you how many times I've heard testimonies of people from animistic societies in jungles around the world that explained how that happened to them. And if all you want to do is go into nature and worship God and, and forget the Bible, that tells me that you're a pagan and God hasn't opened your eyes and you're bound for hell. That's what that tells me. But someone who is, their eyes are open, they will want to know more about the written revelation of God. And the Bible teaches that the more you accept when God shows it to you, once you accept something, he'll take you to the next level. It's just like the kid I knew growing up, Mark, that got held back in the first grade. They wouldn't let him go to the next level. Well, God doesn't let you go to the next level either. And if you don't accept the revelation of God in nature, the laws of nature, then he will never show you or give you a desire for the laws of nature's God. Well, that's an important part of the Declaration of 76, and this is the influence, by the way, of Tom Jefferson's um, enthrallment to John Locke. All right. And that's why he put there go ahead well okay very good well we're almost at the first break so let's let's go out with the summary of that last paragraph here as the music comes up because this is about as perfectly as the purpose of government has ever been laid out in the english language we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness the reference to Locke there was property that to secure these rights, it continues, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And further, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. And that, indeed, he continues, is the point of why they're writing the document. No, we don't want to change things for light and transient causes, but experience has shown mankind is disposed to suffer, while evils are, in fact, sufferable, more so than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they're accustomed. But wait a minute, and here's the rub. When a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government. 
and to provide new guards for their future security. And here he goes on to lay out literally the counts in the indictment, a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having indirect object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. And so Jefferson and the founders continued to prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world, which they then proceeded to do and were able to agree unanimously, some of us would even say miraculously, as if by divine providence, on the course of action. And we'll pick it up there when we get back. back to the second segment of the show for this evening. And this week we're talking about, as the common lawyer, Brent Winters puts it, the Declaration of 76, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. And it's a declaration of a uh, dependence not on the king, the crown, some kind of an emperor, if you will, or somebody taking those powers, but essentially on the creator, the supreme judge, divine providence, several references in the... um, in the declaration here, we're going we're gonna to talk about those today. But essentially, we spent most of the first part of this laying a background that I think is a real important. It's right in Brent's wheelhouse, uh, uh, our special guest, Brent Allen Winters, the common lawyer here. And essentially, um, we ended the bottom of the hour break with a reference to the, um, the Scottish Enlightenment and the fact that they understood that uh, John Locke made the point, Jefferson incorporated his terminology, the laws of nature and of nature's God. Uh, volume 1 and Volume 2, the things that are essentially unwritten and the things that are written, and uh, the written part is scripture. The unwritten part are are what me as an engineer or a scientist would refer to as um, uh, the laws that are always there because we observe them. Laws of gravity and thermodynamics and electronics and orbitals and you name it. Um, in any case, where we go next is the, the latter part of this paragraph where he lays out, we hold these truths to be self-evident, and we have rights, they come from our creator, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. They derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. And here's the kicker, whenever any government or form thereof becomes destructive of those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and basically put in place something new. Furthermore, he says, hey, you know, we don't do this uh, for light and transient causes. All experience has shown that while there are... um, uh, evils that can be suffered, uh, mankind is kind of likely to do so rather than right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they have become accustomed. But here we go. But, he says, when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object 
evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. And then he goes on to say, such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and now basically is the time to lay it out and to make clear why. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. Now, here's one of the lines that I love. Well, I love all of this, but this line is, is, is key because what we're going to now see is a list of grievances, and he says it this way, to prove this. They're going to make a case. They're going to prove it. Let facts be submitted to a candid world. So this uh, basically is, if you will, an indictment. And the list, the outline of grievances is, uh, is what is going to make the case that what they're saying here, the remedy that they're going to lay out, is the right answer. Now, um, from here, Brent, this is, this is the thing that I always think is fascinating. And I can't help but since um, we are seeing a long train of abuses and usurpations today, and in so many respects as we go through the grievances, especially perhaps this year even more than where it's been obvious for at least a decade, uh, we see these grievances are every bit as fitting today as they ever were. And in particular, this long train of abuses and usurpations with a design to reduce the world under, uh, well, my, I might even say the Fourth Reich, but absolute despotism or tyranny. All of that is key. And um, I can't help but think as we go through this, we're going to see the parallels. Anyway, uh, your comments on all that, and then let's continue looking at the, uh, the specifics. Well, it tells you right here this document is organized to the IT. And as far as I know, uh, I, I don't know anybody that has laid out the organization of this document or tried to. If, the, if there is somebody, I haven't read them. Maybe they're out there. But I did make a strong stab at doing that, and I did it right in the table of contents. And uh, what you see when you see the outline organization of this document you see that's laid out to fulfill what he said, where you just read what he said here, a long, where a long train of abuses. The operative word is a long train of abuses, the word train, and then pursuing invariably the same object. Well, a train is a long chain hooked together of things that are moving down the same track in the same direction. They're not all over the lot, they're moving straight, and the rest of the document is his, uh, his laying out in a straight train, going down the same track, leading toward an absolute tyranny. And when you add them all together, as I've done in the, this book you were talking about, um, as I've done there I, in, the, in the table of contents, when you look at it all, get the, just, I'm glancing through it right now. It's on one page, no, two pages, the first part and the second part, you see there that all of it boils down to a train of abuses that are trying to do one thing. They're trying to, to supplant our law of the land, which is our common law, with the law of the city, which is the civil canon laws of Rome. In other words, the Code of Justinian. Every one of these is a violation. Every one of these complaints here Every one of these counts, to put it in uh, terms of a common law complaint in court, is, a, is a, the Crown's accusation of the Crown and par Parliament's uh, supplanting some part 
of our law of the land, our common law, with the law of the city, the civil law. Even uh, to the point of extending, which he says in this document, uh, Parliament, uh, the Crown, uh, agreed to it, to extend the boundary of Quebec up north of the Great Lakes, extend that down to the Ohio River, a neighboring province, Quebec, extending their boundary down to the Ohio River, the Quebec Act, it's what Parliament called it, in order, it says, to introduce a foreign law into these colonies. Well, that's exactly what they tried to do. The <laughs> French, are in, were, they have been clamoring for years to get rid of the English common law, and they were Roman Catholics, and so they wanted that canon civil law stuff, and that's what they said, we want that to rule Quebec, and then they wanted to extend it down to the Ohio River, which would have put it into the land grant of, among other colonies, but mostly Virginia. And Virginia went to war over that question, and all the colonies went to war over these different sub- so attempts to supplant our common law. Uh, go ahead, Mark. Absolutely. Well, and, and I think it's kind of fascinating that you're right. And as you were talking about uh, the Roman civil law, the law of the city and so forth, I'm thinking, well, nowadays we have the modern parallel, which is the law of a different city. You might say it's the district not to exceed 10 miles square that's known as the District of Criminals, or I'm sorry, they called it Columbia, but it's the same thing, the swamp. And uh, ultimately, there are clauses in the Constitution that have been used to say, hey, we're going to take that law of the city. We're going to extend it uh, to be all kinds of legal machinations to replace the common law with all these other things. And you and I have talked about that before. We don't have to belabor it today. But as we go through the grievances, we'll certainly see the parallels, especially with a few of them, and, uh, and how the things that were happening then are exactly, in so many respects, exactly what's happening now. Um, let me do this. Let me read a couple of the um, – a couple of, uh, and I'll do this in order, I guess, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit some of the high points, because we don't have time to do all of them, unfortunately. But uh, here are some of the things that the tyrant, the king, has, has uh, well, refused his assent to laws, most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent. Uh, you know, it's kind of like he's ruling by executive order. And um, when uh, they, unless, uh, when they were so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them, almost like he has uh, all Alzheimer's disease or, uh, you know, a, um, a senior moment that lasts forever. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodations of large districts of people. And he's called together legislative bodies at places unusual and uncomfortable and distant. And uh, for the sole purpose, I note here, of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. So we have different ways of doing the same thing. But ultimately, there's a, a lot of fatiguing the, uh, the, the so-called representatives, or in this case, the bureaucracy, the officialdom, the admiralty, the uh, lots of names for these elements of this civil city law that you refer to. But ultimately, it's all about supplanting. And we're going to get to that grievance in just a second. Um, the, the common law, the law that's based on those two volumes, the law of nature and of nature's God, with uh, something very different. Uh, go ahead, Brent. Well, it, to make this point maybe even more obvious, on the 14th of October in the year 1775, that was before our constitutional 11 years probably, or oh, quite a while, before the Declaration of 76, the colonies, or the first Congress convened in Annapolis, Maryland, um, said this, wrote a letter to Parliament and said, uh, resolved 
that the respective colonies are entitled to the common law of England, and more especially to the great and inestimable privilege of being tried by their peers of the vicinage according to the course of that common law. Well, the reason they said that was that it was clear they were whittling away at their common law. Why were they doing that? I'll tell you why they were doing it. Because the king of England was the king of England. That's a common law office, and it's limited in its power. But in all of the things he did outside of England in his empire, he called himself emperor. And that was easy to pull off in India. Those, those folks who lived over in India didn't know the difference. So they pulled it off there. They pulled it off everywhere they went in the world. But in the American colonies, they couldn't pull it off. Why not? Because the, those folk were British. They were kinsmen. As the Declaration of 76 says, they shared a common consanguinity, a common blood. And, and so the Americans said, now, wait a minute. You can do that to the Indians on the other side of the world. You can't do that to us. Remember, we're, we're kinfolk. We're entitled to that common law. But William Blackstone, who I quote often, he said in the first volume of his commentaries, he said, in, I'm a quoting this, I'm a quoting this. He says, in our American plantations, the common law has no authority. In our American plantations, the common law has no authority. Why? Well, because America, like the rest of the empire of England, was imperial. It was under an emperor. Well, who was that emperor? That was the king. He was emperor here, king over there. But they tried to put that into play here. They couldn't make it happen. They tried and finally went to war over that question. We went to war over a lot of things, but at the bottom of it all, it came down to the law of the land versus the law of the city. And you said a while ago the same things are happening now. That's true. But even more than that, the, these same things in this Declaration of 76 have been happening all over the world for the last 4,000 years, just like they're happening right now, just like they were happening then. Nothing has changed. The struggle throughout humanity since the founding of the city of Babylon forward has been the law of the land, our common law, versus the law of the city. And our Bible, Mark, is consonant with the law of the land. It is inconsonant with the law of the, of the city. That is why the Pope of Rome, upon hearing the first reading of Magna Carta, he blew a head gasket and excommunicated Stephen Langton, who drafted Magna Carta, and excommunicated everybody that had anything to do with it. That means he relegated them to hell, so nobody would ever do that again. Why? Because our common law is contrary to the civil canon laws of Rome, and that means the Code of Justinian of the Roman Empire. That's what that means. And th that code rules every country in our world today in different forms. The three major forms are the German form, called the Code of Bismarck, the French form called the Code Napoleon, which is the code of places like Vietnam and of Louisiana in America Louisiana, yeah. and of Quebec because of the Roman-French influence there. But in all of the world, there are just a few common law countries, and every other country has received, as they say, the Roman Code of Justinian in its various forms. The most widespread one is the canon law of the Church of Rome and also the canon law of the Greek Orthodox Church, which is growing very rapidly, by the way. 
Uh, back to you. Mark. Okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna run out of time, unfortunately, for so much that I'd still like to go through. But let me let me hit a couple of the highlights. I'll I'll just do a few of the grievances here, and I'll let you comment. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna have to get to, we're gonna have to go uh, cut to the chase and uh, hit the big finish with the other references to the uh, the creator of the universe and uh, Isaiah thirty three. But here are a couple. These are some of my favorites, and I don't have to say it. I, I think as we go through it, we're gonna see that um, they are ever bit as true today. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers, we might say three-letter agency bureaucrats today, uh, but similar, to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies, IRS, um, got 80,000 new of those, FBI, ATF, fill in the blank, three letters, without the consent of our legislature. Boy, that one sure resonates. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. Uh, he has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws. That's what we've been talking about, basically, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. And um, uh, so many other things here. Uh, let's go ahead and pause there. Uh, go where you'd like with that. Well, uh, again, these things are happening all, the, all over the world in every nation of tyranny, from the communist states to the uh, Republic of France and the Republic of USSR and the Republic of China do these things. And it's a constant threat here in America as well. These new officers sent swarms to harass our people and eat their substance. Remember, the useful idiots of the evil empire only have one thing on their minds. They want to fulfill the lusts of their flesh. That means, let's get down to the bottom line here, friends, right down to the ground. They want sex when they want it, with whom they want it. They want drugs and opiates when they want them. They want to get drunk when they want to get drunk and how they want to get drunk. And they want the best of everything. They want the, all the elegance of life. They want to eat what they want to eat. They want to feel good about having lots of money and, and acting like they're taking care of people when they're taking care of nobody but themselves. What is that? That's the human condition without Jesus the Christ, period. Without his spirit, without his spirit, living inside of your body, that's all you got, friends. There ain't nothing else. It's either the flesh or the gumption breath of God, the person of the spirit. There is nothing else. And that's what this comes down to, the law of the land, the law of the city, the law of the flesh, the law of the spirit, as the Bible puts it. Make it simple. It's good and bad, up and down, in and out. You don't have to make it simple. The Bible presents it that way over and over, and that's what they're also doing here. When he talks about, uh, you're talking about uh, the foreign jurisdiction, that is a reference to the Quebec Act that sought exactly. to extend the Roman canon laws down to the... That's why, by the way, Mark, that's why the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 was written the way it was and says the things it says to ensure that in that area, that didn't happen again. You got, and that yep. is why Patrick Henry. Go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. No, I, that's that's a that's a key point, and and you're exactly right. Um, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, altering fundamentally the forms of our government, and um, this one, I, I'll let you comment on this. We've we've only got a few minutes. Like I said, I want to get to the the conclusion and the remedy here, which is what they're building up to. But this one has always kind of, um, I think, really hits home for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves. And this is actually right smack. Down 
there in Article 1, Section 8, if I remember, I think it's Clause 17, declaring themselves invested with the power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. And that sounds like that law of the city thing you're talking about. That is administrative agencies, administrative law, regulatory powers. That's the powers of the executive branch, of the governor, of the president, through the alphabet soup bureaucracies that didn't exist to any degree in America before Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He pushed for it, he got it, and made him all-powerful. He became a czar. I didn't use those words back then. That's what it was, though. That It's always the same. Yeah, always the same, taking away their charters. Well, that's what Virginia said. That's why Patrick Henry commissioned George Rogers Clark to go take the forts at Vincennes, Indiana, and Kaskaskia, Illinois, to take it back from the jurisdiction of the French that had were moving in there, and to have that law there and to reestablish the common law. What they had done, see, when they did that, they told Virginia, "Well, the charter you have from the crown doesn't matter anymore. We were you were given land. The colony of Virginia was given land, which took in what is today uh, the southern quarter of Ohio, the southern." third of Indiana and the southern half of Illinois, in other words, the northern boundary of Virginia went straight to the Mississippi River and down. All that area, the Crown with the Quebec Act, took away their land. That's why it says you have forbidden us to enter new lands. Well, why did they say that? Because the law of the land is foundation to everything we do. What is the law of the land? It is God's trust settlement with man, with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, the Davidic covenant repeated to him, repeated throughout the Bible to the very end, and then given to Jesus Christ, and it's all about the entrusted property and this trust settlement of God. The covenant is what our forebears called it, and it is the, the land is, without the land, there is nothing, and without cities, Mark, there is no law of the city. That is why China is now building cities and trying to persuade the uh, rustic country folk to come live in the cities. And they'll do it. And that is why Egypt, Genesis, built cities. Go ahead. Yeah, and and well, let's. We've only got about three minutes. Let's go ahead, and I'll I'll uh, have to abbreviate some of this. But in every stage of these oppressions, he says, or they say, we've petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. So he says, a prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. They've tried to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We've reminded them of the circumstances of our settlement here and so forth. So what? Therefore, we must acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind. Enemies in war, in peace, friends. So here comes the uh, the big finish, the, the remedy. We, therefore, the representatives of the United Small U States of America and General Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world, there's another reference from Isaiah 33, for the rectitude of our intentions do, by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they're absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that basically they can do all these things, conclude peace, contract alliance, establish commerce, all other acts which independent states may of right do. 
And here we go. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, there's that term again, and that is the uh, final in the declaration of the, uh, the four references to him. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And um, unfortunately, Brent, we've only got about uh, a little less than two minutes. Go ahead and, and wrap it up as best we can in the time we've got. Uh, we can end where we began. Um, our, the, our common law is a Christian tradition. And it, it depends not upon morality, but upon the but divine provision, that's why they say with a firm reliance. You see, it's not a declaration of independence. It's a declaration of shifting dependence, relying on the provision, the providence of God for all things. And whoever you rely on, my friend, whoever you rely on for your protection will be your master. You can rely on a politician. I hear people talk about D.J. Trump. I like the guy. I, I like it when he's in office. But I am not to rely on him for my protection. If I do, he will become my master because he's nothing but a mere mortal. Exactly. He's not God. We, we don't rely on the policeman for our protection. We don't allow, rely on the sheriff. No. If you do, they become your master. You become the slave. Be careful who you rely on. That's why the Declaration of 76 says we've got to rely on somebody. We're going to rely on our God. We're going to rely on the God the maker of all things, seen and unseen, and we're going to depend on him to, to provide everything we need. He is provender, provider of all things, not a God of morality, a God of provision. Back to you. Amen. Well, thank you, Brent. I mean, and that basically is it. I encourage folks, get together over this coming uh, few days, upcoming holiday weekend, and um, understand what the real basis of the supreme law of the land is, certainly was and should still be, and what it is that is the essence of America. In order to keep it, we have to know it and be able to teach it. Let me put it this way. These truths were once unanimously even, universally held to be self-evident. And if we intend to stay free, they need to be again. Hey, thanks, Brent. Always great to talk to you. Thanks, folks. Have a blessed Independence Day. Teach your children, friends, neighbors what you know. And may Yahuwah bless you and yours. 